0: how great this chapter in Romans chapter 8 is. It's, it's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible for you and for me. And we have been coming through the book of Romans for you, you that are visiting today, and we've worked our way up to Romans chapter 8. Uh, and uh, we have been dealing with this now for a couple of months and looking at some great things. There's so much in the book of Romans in chapter 8 that uh, really helps us understand where, what God wants us to do. We have been talking about building into a number of things. We've been talking about, first of all, walking in the Spirit. We've got that defined in Romans in the early part, how we're going to walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. We define what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. We went through all of those biblical concepts in the early part of the book of Romans. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking on how that we should keep our focus. But the number one problem we all have in what we do in the ministry or do in the work of God is losing our focus. The Bible is written, and this is how I look at it. It's very simple. The Bible is written in every aspect, no matter what you do, where you go, what you get into. The Bible in its basic form is written for you and I to always keep our focus. Everything else in the world out there will go against that to try to get you to lose your focus. Life's just that simple for a Christian. And that's why I, I, I hammer it time and time again. Bible principles. You have to operate in your life by what the book says and the principles. I teach in uh, one of the first things we talked about in the, in the guys and the gals that are in our, our three-year institute program, which really takes them into the deep level of the Word of God and really kind of uh, puts the whole Bible together for them. I told them in one of the first sessions we had, that the mark of a good, strong Christian that has their focus is someone that always looks around, looks behind, and looks ahead. It's a three-point concept that we always have to uh, be a Mr. Bobblehead. Uh, you always seen him in the car where they're on the back and the head's always going around. That's the child of God. Always looking around, always looking behind, and always looking ahead. Romans chapter 8 is us looking ahead. Romans chapter 8, as we know now, was based on the great chapter on the two redemptions. Our spiritual redemption, the day we got saved, and the coming, uh, forthcoming literal redemption, uh, when Christ comes back and we get our glorified bodies. And we have been talking about, last week, being glorified together, and how the Bible says that keeping our focus is looking ahead looking ahead and realizing, as we looked last week at a great verse, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed on us in that day. And that's where we're at today, and we want to continue in this section. And we're going to see another great Bible event. Another great Bible event, really the end result of the Bible, and where the Bible points to in everything that, uh, uh, that it does. Now, we already know that the theme of the Bible is a kingdom. And that Kingdom of God is in two formats, the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of Heaven. We know that. We've been through it many, many times. We've talked about it on Sunday morning. We've certainly laid it out in Institute. We've talked about it many times one-on-one as you've come over. And we've certainly talked about it on Thursday night. We also know that the Old Testament is basically a record of God formulating the Kingdom of Heaven, while the New Testament is the formulation and the preparation of the Kingdom of God and then we know that they're both fulfilled when Christ comes back and establishes His kingdom. And uh, that's when we get our glorified body, and that's the start of both kingdoms, and Christ being His glorious reign, and you and I being joint heirs with Him, uh, as we talked about last week, and basically the fulfillment of the God's three plans that we talked about when we laid it all out uh, last week as best we could in in the human concept. Now, for a Christian, and I, I was telling somebody this week, and uh, uh, the Bible looks like a complicated book. It really does. The Bible looks like it's, it's a hard book to grasp. And it's really not. Uh, it's very intimidating if you just look at it in your lap there. It's probably that thick with a lot of words in it. If you look around the people next to you, a lot of them have little scribbly notes all over the thing, and some of them have different color coordinations, you know. That's all an attempt for somebody to learn the Bible and study the Bible, and that's all good. We're told all of our life and we're led to believe that the Bible is almost an impossible book. And, of course, that's simply not true. I found that, and I, and I was telling, uh, oh, it was Renee when your mom and them was over this week. I told you that uh, the Bible, as complicated as it looks, the Bible basically breaks itself down into 12 sections. And the way you learn the Bible, the way you approach the Bible, is learn those 12 sections. You take each one of them, define it, understand it, and then begin to uh, begin to put those things together, and in time, once you approach it that way, you know, the Bible begins to make sense for you. I think that's one of the problems with the Bible. It becomes, you know, you, uh, I've told you before, most people read the Bible, and the reason why they quit reading the Bible is they start reading it, but they don't know what they're looking for. And when they do find something, then they don't know what to do with it. You approach the Bible the biblical way, and look at the Bible as 12 components. Twelve sections, twelve events, twelve things that God accomplished through His Bible. Now, He accomplished a lot more than twelve, obviously. But those twelve major sections of the Bible, if you learn each one of them, if you'll put each one of them together, and you begin to come through, and this is what I do when people come over. You know, we have a policy that I'll spend an hour a week with anybody that wants to learn the Bible. Somebody come in to me, like you guys did last week, and you said, hey, I want to learn the Bible. They're already in discipleship. They're already getting the foundational stuff. Stephanie's teaching them that. And then we all get together and begin to come through a systematic, very basic format of the 12 major events in the Bible, and, and then we put it together. I told you a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that, and I have been talking with the guys on the last couple of Thursday nights, uh, and I talked about how that what we want to do is we want to put together a, a Bible symposium where we take one Saturday and I get four or five guys that are going to take uh, a, a, a particular section. And all you younger Christians that they'll want to get a, a leg up on the Word of God. We'll start in the morning. We'll go for about an eight-hour day and we'll have five or four or five different classes all around. Each one of them will be assigned a different event and you'll be able to get five or six events in by each class being an hour, and you'll move to the next one, move to the next one, and at the end of the day, you'll have five or six of the major uh, uh, concepts together. Then we'll come back in a couple of months, and we'll do the other five or six, and we'll put it all together for you. And it'll, it'll help you no matter where you're at. Now, that's the whole Bible. Now, for you and for me, in our Christian life, Let's talk about where you and I are at, and I'm not saying or suggesting you don't need to understand all 12 of them, but where you and I are faced with in our life today, we are faced with five events that are part of the 12, but they're the five events that affect us. One of them is the church age, and we're living in the church age right now, and basically we know the church age runs approximately 2,000 years. It starts in the book of Acts and goes up to the rapture of the church. The next event that we need to be focused on was, is the rapture of the church itself. And you remember when we started Romans chapter 8, we took a Sunday and I, and I defined the rapture from the Bible for you. I gave you all the pros and the cons. I took you everywhere and showed you the opposition to the teaching today. And I showed you in the Bible how that you absolutely know that there is an absolute rapture the way the Bible uh, lays it out. Along with that, we know we have the judgment seat of Christ. That's part of the second one. The third one is the Tribulation. We know that the Tribulation is the time of seven-year period where God brings the nation of Israel back to Him. The fourth one would be the Second Coming of Christ, which is really the theme of the Bible and the establishment of those two kingdoms that I talked about earlier, the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of Heaven. Then the fifth one, and this is where we're at in Romans chapter 8, the fifth one. Now this is where Romans chapter 8 is, is, is look around, look behind, look ahead. This is where you keep your focus. This is where you are your head out to be, and everything that you do uh, is for the Lord to keep that focus, because the fifth one is the millennial reign of Christ. And that's what we're going to focus on today, because when we get into Romans chapter 8, where we're at, and uh, it's, a, it's a situation where, just like we defined the rapture, now in the passage we're going to get into today we've got to define the millennial reign of Christ for you to better understand where we're at in Romans chapter 8. In our text today, when we get to Romans chapter 8 in just a moment, if you want to, I'd invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. That's where we're going to go first, so you're already there. But uh, uh, Romans chapter 8 deals with this coming kingdom, and it lays it out through the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we call the millennial reign of Christ. Now let me tell you why we call it that. The millennium, the word millennium, that we all use, is a combination of two words. It's a combination of "mill," which means a thousand, and then it's a combination of anum, which is a, which means yearly, our word for annual. And so when you put those two words together, we have a thousand years. That's, the, that's why we talk about the word, or use the word millennium. It represents a thousand year range. That Christ is going to instill on this planet when he comes back. Now, let me give you the order of events just so you have them in the right order because I don't want to confuse you here. And again, if you're here this morning and, and you can't follow me along with this, or maybe you got to lose you someplace along the way, please don't despair. You can come over anytime, any place, anywhere in my home, and I will lay this out for you so you can grab it. I even have that chart up there on the wall that we put, which really shows the whole thing. We have that in a simpler form, that if you'd want to get one of those, uh, we can work it out. We're here to help you. I certainly don't do you any good if I sit up here and lay all this out. And I know most of you will grasp this, and some of you, bless your hearts, I don't want to lose you, but maybe just because of where you're at uh, and just getting into all of this, it'll be over your head. So please don't let that discourage you. I'm here for you, I'll help you any way I can, and we'll get it broken down. It's really not hard, Uh, it's just sometimes it appears to be overwhelming. So we call it the millennium, a combination of two words that means a thousand years. This period of time in the Bible is called the iron rule and the iron reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's how the events work. We're living in a church age right now. That church age, as I already told you, runs about 2,000 years. Any moment now, any day now, the rapture of the church is going to take place. That's the next event. When that rapture takes place, we go out. Once we go out, then the next section starts, which is the tribulation period. And God began to turn His attention back to the nation of Israel to bring Him back to where He wants them to be. That's why, when you put it all together, we're having the the, the tumultuous problems in the Middle East right now. The Middle East is like a teapot ready to boil over, like a volcano ready to explode. Why? Because we are at that period of time where we're at the end of the church age and right ready for the rapture to take place and then the tribulation to start. I was talking to somebody this week and we were talking about Barack Obama and uh, everybody in the world out there thinks Barack Obama is the Antichrist. And I told him, I said, that's not true. The Antichrist is defined very clearly for you in the Bible. And uh, he's not the Antichrist. But let me tell you what he is and who he is. You ever been to a concert? I'm, you know, you go to a big-name concert. I don't know any big names because I never get to go to any concert. But you go to a big-name concert. What do they do before the big-name band comes on? David, you smile smiling. You've been there before. What do they do before the big guy comes out? They have some no-name warm them up. Billy Graham wanted me to do that for him, and I declined the offer. (coughs) But I like being a no-name. He said it. They have some some guys who are good, but they're not the big guys that are the main event. And what they do, and you said it. You said exactly that. They warm up the crowd, don't they, huh? They warm up the crowd, and then the main event comes out, right? Okay, that's what Barack Obama is. He's a no-name (coughs) warm-up. He's warming it up. He's getting it ready. And maybe there'll be somebody after Him. (coughs) And I'm not saying anything against Him one way or the other. I'm just saying in the world events that we're in, there may be another president after Him. But we're in a warm-up stage. But He's not the main event. The main event is yet to come. And then when that happens, and God turns His attention to the nation of Israel. And then the Lord comes back at the second coming. We're going to look at that here in Revelation chapter 19 in just a second. When He comes back, He comes back as a military force. Bible says that there's armies that he brings back with him. Those armies basically take over the world. All the unsaved people are wiped off the planet. They go to the lake of fire or to hell. And uh, God now establishes his 1,000-year reign called the Millennium. And the Bible is very clear. Psalms chapter 2, verse 9. Revelation chapter 2, verse 27. And we're going to see it here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15 in just a moment. That it is a, a rule of iron. It's a righteous reign. There's no, more, there's no more shenanigans that go on in politics. There's no more underhandedness. There's no more being deceived. Anybody, everybody has to play with the ball straight up. Everything is done right in righteousness and everything is done exactly the way that it's supposed to be. And uh, it's, it's one of those great concepts. Now, I want to begin reading for you in Revelation chapter 19, and we want to start in verse 11. Now, let me just say this to you. Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, up to uh, the end of the chapter, is the great definitive chapter in your Bible on the second coming of Christ. Now, Revelation chapter 20... Up to around verse 9, maybe 10, is the great definitive passage in the Bible on the millennium. So, if you want to get an a understanding, you read these two portions that we're going to read. Starting in 1911, running right into chapter 20, and coming on down through it here. And that's what I'm going to read for you today. All right? I'll, and I will give you commentary as we go so you can stay with the context. All right? Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness does he judge and make war. See, I told you that when he comes back, he's going to judge and he's going to reign in righteousness. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and in a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed in a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, here it comes. Here's you and me. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nation, that he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fiercest of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture, and on his thigh, a name written, King of kings, and Lord of lords. And I, now, you notice how big that is there? I mean, if you're in your Bible, I'm sure it probably is. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. And how many ever, anybody ever worked for a newspaper? I mean, you were in, where you knew what was going on. You know that the headlines that they use in newspapers, they have different sizes for different events. You know what they call, do you know what they call, maybe they don't anymore, but for years and years and years they did. You know what they call the biggest bold type that you would find on a front page that was really big when they had some catastrophe or some great event. You know what they call that type? They called it second coming type. They called it second coming type. In other words, you couldn't get any bigger than that because you can't get any bigger event than the second coming of Christ. All right, let's go up. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven. Now this will be, now we're moving from the, the coming of Christ into the, after, the, after the battle of Armageddon and where all the dead bodies are laying over there and, the, and he calls the great feast of the of the carnivorous birds, uh, which is called the great supper uh, of, of the great God here in verse 70, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains. And the flesh of mighty men, these were all the Antichrist people that were against the Lord when He came back, and the flesh of horses, and them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, There's there's the Antichrist, and within the false prophet that wrought the miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and that had worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Now, what we have just read in verse 11 has started out with the second coming of Christ, and I saw heaven open. It has worked its way through the great battle of Armageddon and then shown you the aftermath, and now Christ is back. He's on this earth. And now we move into our subject this morning, which is the millennial reign of Christ in chapter 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for, here it comes, a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. Here comes the second time until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, the judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads uh, and on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ A thousand years. There it is again. But the rest of the dead, unsaved people, live not again until the, here it comes again, thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him, one more time, a thousand years. One more time, verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, and it goes on and on and on, Satan loosed out and, and he gets into a little confrontation, and then we go to the great white throne judgment. My point is this. We now know that the millennium beyond any shadow but it lasts 1,000 years. I just showed you two passages that give you both context. The second coming, moving right into the millennium, and then showing you that, that it runs for 1,000 years. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you now and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Help us, Holy Spirit of God. Lead and guide us into all truth. Give us what we need today. And we'll thank You and praise You in Jesus' name. For His sake we ask it. Amen. Now, God has a millennium, a thousand-year reign, for three reasons. And these reasons are very important. And they tie right back into what we got in Romans chapter 8. First of all, the Bible says that He has a millennial reign because God is going to set His Son on the throne for a thousand years and He's crowned King of kings and a Lord of lords. Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of God and His Christ. God gives them to Him. So the first thing He does is have a thousand-year reign uh, to give uh, His Son the throne on this earth, which was promised to Him, and now He's going to fulfill that. Second reason. Second reason for the nation of Israel. When God told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, that he had a land for him, which we know as the promised land, land that was given by the promises of God. He sent him out to get that land. Israel never have really fulfilled all of that promise. They got close to it under David and Solomon. Solomon is probably the closest to it. But they never really fulfilled everything the way that they were supposed to. And so he has the second reason for the millennium, is to give the land, that was what we call in Bible theological circles, the land grant that was given to Abraham. It's called the royal land grant that God gave to Abraham. He promised it to him. Abraham representing the nation of Israel. They have never had that. So for a thousand years, before eternity starts, they're going to have that land. And then there's a third reason, and this is where it's important for you and me. The third reason that He has an 1,000-year reign is for our millennial reward as a Christian. And remember, we've talked about the fact that we're, we're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I've said it many, many times, and I continue to say it. And I continue to pound it home, even though many people will never get it. When you got saved, God has a plan for your life. Now, I don't know what that plan is necessarily for you because God's plan for everybody in here will be different. But I do know this, there's two aspects to your life as a child of God, God's will for your life and God's plan for your life. God's plan for your life is what God wants you to do. God's will for your life is what God wants you to be. You see, everybody in here may have a different plan, but we all, if we're saved, have the same will of God in our lives. We think the will of God is something that we do, and that's not true. The will of God is something that we are. The will of God for everybody in this room is that God's will for you and me, if you're saved, is to become more like Jesus Christ every day of your life. Tie more into the Bible. Tie more into those principles. Do, make sure you keep your focus. Get everything. Let nothing get you off track. And as you fulfill God's will for your life, through the process of being what God wants you to do, then God allows you to do what He wants you to do. Traditionally in Christian circles with most of God's people I've met in life, we get it backwards. We try to do something for God before we really are something for God. And in almost every case, the results are disastrous. God's plan for you and for me is simply, and I've said it many, many times, God wants you and I, if you're saved, to find out what God wants you to do with your life and then give all of your energy the rest of your life to do that. But you have to know God, be what God wants you to be, or boy, you'll run off into the wild blue yonder and you'll never get anything accomplished for God. So God has a thousand year reign that He rewards you and me for us giving up down here all that we could have had because we understood the right focus and the big picture. It's a lot like this, and I use this illustration, I know you've heard this before, but be patient with me because it's the best illustration on how to illustrate this. Let's say I'm a multi-billionaire. I got more money than I know what to do with. And let's say that I'm stuck someplace and I I need just, I need $100. But I don't, my wallet's been stolen. The banks are closed. I don't have any way to get this. Now, I got $100 million in the bank. But I don't have any money on me at this particular point in time. And I run into you. And I say to you, hey, my name is Bob Alexander. I'm a multimillionaire. Now, here's what I need. I don't have any money whatsoever. I need $100. I promise you this. If you give me $100 tonight, give me your address. Give me your phone number. I will bring you $1,000 tomorrow. In other words, I'll let you make tenfold of what you give me uh, if you give me $100. I, I need the money right now. It's a disaster if I don't get this $100. I got millions of dollars over here, but I need $100 right now. If you're willing to give me $100, tomorrow I'll give you $1,000. Now, here's how it works. Bible says in the book of Psalms, Bible says in the book of Psalms that man's life, Psalm chapter 90 is three score and ten. That's 70 years. At the very most that you and I have to give God is 70 years. Now, I want to say this too. God allowed you to be born when you were born to fit into His overall plan. He's given you the experiences in your life, good or bad, that whenever you finally plugged into what God wanted you to do, they could be an asset to you. There's no question. There's no no haphazardness to it at all. God allowed you to be in this church. God crossed our paths. He knows what I got want to do. He knows what I've seen He wants me to do. And so He's picked like people and He brings people through to find out, yeah, I want to do it or no, I don't want to do it either. But the bottom line is this. God has something that He wants you to do. But you only got 70 years at the max to do it. Now, I know. I know. Don't raise your hand and tell me your grandmother lived to be 105. I understand those things happen. But on an average in life, if you took all the 100 people who lived to be 110 and all the people that died when they are 40 and average it all out, you know what you come out with? Three score and 10. But you know what? We don't have 70 years. Because you know why? Now, you're going to have to help me with math here because I'm not very good at math. But you know Why? Most of us screwed around most of our lives and didn't get serious till 20 years old. I did. I'm going to use me for an example. I I messed around the first 20 years of my life, and I wasted 20 years. So, out of that 70 years, how long do I have now? I I need a little more help than that. How long do I have now? You're my math person. you got to figure this out for (laughs) me. But you know what I learned one time setting the study? In a year's life, you realize that we sleep. 15 years of our life? You don't think that, do you? You don't think that eight hours a day out of a out of a, a 24 hour day. That's a third of your day. You don't think, you don't think how that thing works its way out. All right, so you you got 50 years left and now you sleep 15. What's that? 35 left. Now, on top of that, on top of that, you know what else you got? You eat five years out of your life. Five years of your life you spend eating. Now we're down to 30 years. We haven't even counted vacation time. We haven't even counted the times that we're out of fellowship with God. I want to promise you something. If you figured your life out and my life out on the grand scale of God, this is why you have to get back to the Bible and see the reality of it. If you take your life based on three score and ten and figured your life based on what we have to give God that is really worth anything, I'm going to tell you, folks, out of my life, and I don't know when I'm going to die, but out of my life, if I fit the mode of things, I guarantee you, out of my life, with the way I started out, and my goofiness in between, and and, and all of the things that we, and I like to eat, so I'm probably eight or nine years into this thing. (laughs) I guarantee you. Reality, folks, Reality. And that's really what the coming of the Lord is going to be about. It's about reality. The reality is, in our lifetime, we probably only have 15 or 20 good strong years to give to the Lord. You know what God says? You know why He has a millennial reign of Christ? One, for His Son to sit on the throne. Two, for the nation of Israel to get back their land grant. Three, that He rewards those people just like that I went to Angie and Jenny. And he says to me, Bob, I let you be born. I put you in Kansas City. I brought the people into your world. I've done everything to get you to a point where you will will do for me. Bob, look, I know there's a lot of things out there. I know you can make a lot more money doing this. I know you have other skills that are really good. And I know that there's all kinds of things out there, Bob, that want to grab your focus. But I'm telling you. If you get the right focus, get the right book, get the right principles, and you give me 20 years of your life and give it everything you got. Stay between the white lines. Do it by the book. When you I come back, I'll give you a thousand over there. That's how it works. It's not complicated. Bible's not complicated. We like to make it complicated, but in reality, it's really not. This period of a thousand years, yes, it's literal years. It's literal years. It's called God's eternal day in the Bible. It, it's called that day, or the day, or the day of the Lord. Now, I know that some of you will want a deeper study of this, and you're just the way you are, and my, my advice to you is this. And I'll help you do this. The definitive section of the Bible, not the chapter, but the whole section of the Bible, which lays out the millennial reign of Christ in incredible detail, will be very easily Ezekiel chapter 40 through Ezekiel chapter 48. If some of you theologues out there desire to have a really, and I'm going to tell you, at some point in your life, you're going to have to get it. Maybe not right now. Maybe you, you don't need that right now. <clears throat> But if you're ever going to understand the Bible and how this whole thing's work, at some point, you're going to have to do what I did. And you're going to have to take Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, and you're going to have to pick that thing clean like, like, like flesh off a piece of catfish so you don't get the bone. You're going to have to, eat, you're going to, have to fillet that thing and take every piece and put it in the right spot. There's only one book in the world I ever found that, that and of course I'm limited to my knowledge, but in my life, and that will be Clarence Larkin's book on dispensational truth. Clarence Larkin's book, he's got a lot of good things, he's got some things that aren't so hot, but when it comes down to the millennium and laying it out, there's nobody ever read in my life. And we sell his books back here, I think we're out now, but I told her to order five more uh, in this next round. But I'm telling him, what he does, and what I did, As I sat down, it took me a week and a half to do it. At one point in my life, I said, I have got to get this down. And what I did was take his book, open up Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, and he systematically breaks down every chapter. It's incredible. You realize that chapter 36, 37, 38, 39 all deal with the second coming of Christ and the restoration of the nation of Israel. It deals with the battle of Armageddon, the second coming of Christ. And those four chapters uh, bring you right into chapter 40, which is the millennial reign of Christ. Chapter 40 through chapter 43, and I'm just going to give you a a bio of it. I I mean, mean, just so you have some kind of understanding of it. I hate to pass over this, but I don't want to spend a lot of time because that's not my point today. But I'm trying to be all things to all men that I may make some mad. That's not how that verse goes, but you know how it goes. Now, chapter 40 through chapter 43, verse 27, all deals with the millennial temple. And you're going to find the most incredible detail. In fact, in my Bible, if you would look at it, I copied his chart. You know what he did? He took the temple and he drew it out like that and he put every piece of that temple in there, and then he lined it up with where it's at in Ezekiel chapter 40 to chapter 43. What I did is just copied this out. I, I wanted at a glance, a visual, that when I had to explain it, it was right there. I wrote the little chart in. I A, B, C, D, E, F, G'd each part, and then I ran right by that letter the reference to where it goes. Where it went up in Ezekiel, I ran a reference back that I could look at it and see it in an incredible format because there's so much detail. He deals with the altar of the burnt offering. He deals with the little 25 chambers that are around it. He talks about where the priests change their clothes. He shows you the eastern gate. He shows you where the priests eat the holy food. He shows you where the sacrifices are washed and where the sacrifices are boiled. He shows you the holy place, the place for the singers, the kitchen, the north gate, the south gate. It's incredible, but it's stuff that you need to understand. Maybe not today. I wouldn't run out of here and say, well, that's my goal is to get that down. No, maybe that's not where you're at today. But you need to understand that these are the eight greatest chapters in all the Bible. In chapter 43, he talks about the Eastern Gate. Now, to me, the Eastern Gate is an incredible thing. The Eastern Gate faces the Mount of Olives. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, when Christ comes back, he comes through that Eastern Gate. You know, in 1543, a Turkish king by the name of Solomon, they called him Suleiman the Magnificent. He thought himself to be Christ. And what he did in 1543, he had, he had beat the, uh, the, the Roman Catholics out of Jerusalem during the Crusades, and now he had Jerusalem. And you know what he did? He made a proclamation that because he was a god, and he knew the Jews' prophecy that Christ was going to come through that eastern gate, that he hated the Jews, he wanted to defile that prophecy. And he made the declaration that he, the great Suleiman the Magnificent, on tomorrow morning, was going to walk through that eastern gate and show himself to be God. Well, God had other plans. And that night, the story goes that Suleiman had a terrible nightmare dream. And he dreamed he walked through that gate with all the pomp and circumstance of a great king showing himself to be God. And right when he got through the other side, God killed him dead on a mackerel. It shook him up so much that he not only did not go through the gate, but he was so afraid that he walled the gate up. And to this day, if you go to Jerusalem on a Holy Land tour, you'll see the Eastern Gate with the same wall there that Suleiman put up in 1543. You know what God did? God fixed him from going through it and fixed it so nobody else could go through it because that gate, my friend, is reserved for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And don't you think for a minute that a few bricks and mortar are going to keep him out. It kept Suleiman the Magnificent out, but it won't keep the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In chapter 44, we have the gate for the prince. And If you want to study that out, Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 24, will tell you in the millennium that David is the prince. Then we move into chapter 45 and 46, and now we begin a description of the outer part of the temple and the holy ablation, or sometimes called the sanctuary. And this is where he shows you the Lord's portion, the prince's portion, the priest's portion, the Levite's portion. In fact, in 45, 46, 47, and 48, it works like this. He kind of starts with the temple, and it's kind of like a TV camera. You ever watch a TV program where they get a close-up of something or somebody, and then they start panning back, and pretty soon you see the whole perspective? That's what he does here. That's what he does. He starts out with the sanctuary and the temple, and then he pans out and shows you the priest's portion and the other people's portion. Then he pans out and shows you the overall land, and he pulls back and he shows you the whole concept. And Larkin lays that out in such incredible detail. Incredible detail. In chapter 47, we talk about the river of the water of life flowing out of the temple and going south to the Dead Sea and through the desert and finally in the Mediterranean. And very frankly, and I I had planned to do this when we were coming through this, next week I'm going to take this passage right here because it fits right into what Romans chapter 8 has been talking about and what we've been studying in Romans about how to walk in the Spirit. There's no greater example than walking in the Spirit than understanding how Ezekiel chapter 47, even though it's a millennial passage, Even though it was written many, many years ago, how it fits into your life today. Remember what I told you? Look behind historically. Look around you practically. Look ahead doctrinally. And we're going to talk about that next week. It'll fit right into it. But in chapter 47, the river of the water of life. Chapter 48, then we deal with the royal land grant that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. Now, this is something that you want to get down. And I got it, I got it all the way in my Bible. And Larkin does a masterful job. He starts out with the sanctuary, and then he shows you uh, how it works from there. And then as he backs out, he shows you the whole land grant given to Abraham, given to, to the Jews, with the temple right in the middle, and then shows you every tribe where his inheritance is. It's one of the most incredible concepts that you'll ever get down in your Bible. If you're ever going to do any work with Muslims, if you're ever going to deal with anybody uh, in teaching them the Bible or the deeper things of the Bible, or you just want a better understanding of what's going on in the Middle East today and why, you've got to get Ezekiel chapter 40, chapter 48 down. Okay, with all that basic understanding and... Believe me, we just scratched the surface, but I wanted to not just, I wanted to give you something to whet your appetite, and I will help you with it any way you want. This will be a great Thursday night Bible study question, but it'll help you any way you want. But with that in mind, we have a better understanding of Romans chapter 8 and what we're going to study today, which deals with the millennial reign of Christ. All right, turn back to Romans chapter 8 now. Let's go to work here. Now, I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 23. Follow along with me if you would. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the shame in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves, growing within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, here it comes, to wit, the redemption of our body. Now remember I showed you that? All Romans chapter eight, I broke it down into four sections, but I told you that the whole chapter is built around two concepts. The redemption spiritually of your soul, the day you got saved, here, we're talking about the redemption of your body. And the passage we're looking at here is the millennial reign of Christ when the burden of sin and the bondage uh, is taken off this planet. Now, this is, this, is, this is an incredible passage. But what I want you to focus on today is, is how he's talking about the millennial reign of Christ. We've defined it now. we looked at the place in the Bible that details it out. Now, let's talk about it, how it applies to you and me in a practical sense. Now, This passage tells us that not only are you and I under the bondage, but the whole creation, the earth, the animals, are under the bondage, and the bondage of Adam's curse. And what he's saying here is that the animals and the earth didn't do anything wrong. They went under the bondage of the corruption because Adam sinned, and sin was passed upon all men, and that's where we're at. Now, when it comes to this millennial reign of Christ, there's some things that you want to, you know about the characteristics of it. It's a lot like the Garden of Eden. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 31, uh, uh, excuse me, 36 verse 35, likens it when Christ's millennium comes back to the Garden of Eden. you got perfect weather. You have a perfect government. You, you have everything that you need in a way that it really lays the whole thing out. And, you know, remember the last couple of weeks I, I talked about how that uh, the Bible keeps you from being deceived by what's out there? We have in our world today, and, you know, everybody's got their own pet deal that they want to they wanna peddle, uh, this idea of global warming. And uh, if it's global warming, how cold, are, how has been so cold the last couple of weeks in Kansas City? But anyway, global warming. Now, what they don't understand is this, and, I, and, I, you know, and as long as you reject the Bible and reject God, you'll never get the thing figured out. I mean, in the garden, it was a perfect estate. There was no South Pole. There was no North Pole. In fact, scientists to this day go to Antarctica, and they go to, to Artica, North and South, and you know what they find when they dig down? They find that one time, both Artica and Antarctica, North Pole and South Pole, were tropical gardens. There was one, they find vegetation down underneath the ice. They find evidence that one time that it was, that it was a, that was just like it is in Tahiti, or like it is in Hawaii, that it was a beautiful place, and, and of course, their answer is to it, you know, the ice age, you know, ice age come in and froze everything else, and then when the atmosphere changed over to millions and millions and millions and millions, they got every kind of thing in the world, everything else. I remember one time I was listening to this idiot talk about the you know how that uh, how that uh, the dinosaurs were oh you know now they got another theory the dinosaurs were extinct now because a comet came down or a meteor hit the earth 200 million years ago and fried everybody out and now look out cuz there's another one coming back and we're all going to get fried this guy was up there and he was saying well he says we find these gigantic mastodons these big woolly mammoths who who are trapped in ice and he says we know we know now from our scientific study we know now that hundreds of thousands and thousands of years ago that when the ice age came that these, these animals were trapped in the ice as the ice threw the glaciers that they covered this earth. And then when the glaciers receded it stepped the North Pole and the South Pole and set the season. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself so you're telling me that the woolly mammoths and the great animals were trapped in the ice flow when the glaciers came? Folks, folks, The fastest glacier in the world moves four inches a year. That's some slow mastodon, isn't it? No, there was no ice age. There was no comet. No, what brought in the cold north wind, what brought in all of the things that we face is man's sin. Stop that beautiful garden that God had. There was a time when it was beautiful all over this planet. But not today. Not today. And the earth and the millennium will go back to that. It'll go back to that. I was watching the thing last night on, on the SETI program. In fact, I had to go to bed. It was too late, but I taped it. I want to see it this afternoon. You know, the SETI program is a search for extraterrestrial life, you know. And, and, and this lady was sitting there laying this thing out. I had to watch a little bit of it, but then I had to go to bed. And she's doing this thing out. And she, asked the, she looks at the camera and she says, The question I'm trying to s- solve today, and I'm taking a lot of abuse and ridicule for it, because nobody wants to fund what we're doing. But she says, what I'm trying to discover, is there, and it was serious I looked in the camera and said, is there intelligent life in outer space? I looked back at her and said, I'm got the same problem. I'm just trying to find out if there's any intelligent life on planet Earth. Forget the cosmos. Is there any intelligent life down here? A mastodon trapped in the ice floe. Moving four feet a year, four inches a year, well that'll get you. That'll get you the Nobel Peace Prize. You got to get back to the Bible. The Bible says at one time the the whole earth was a perfect paradise, and then man's sin came in, and when man's sin came in, it wrecked it, and the earth fails the weight of that sin. Look at verse nineteen, for the earnest expectation of the creature. That's your dog. That's your cat. If you got a horse, that's your horse. If you got squirrels in your backyard, that's them. They're running up and down your fence in the back, looking in your house just to see if you've you got your glorified body yet. <laughs> for the earnest expectation of the creature, the animals, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Why? Verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, sin, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected to the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. I'm going to tell you something. You know why we all like pets? Not everybody does. But well, you, a lot of people do. And you know what? You know why I like to go to zoos? We like to look at the wild animals. How many times have you been to the zoo? And I know this is true. You may not admit this, but that's okay. I know it's true. Because I'm the same way. You go to the zoo and you look at that big... 800, 900 pound lion laying there? And he's laying there sleeping with a little pink tongue hanging out the side. He looks adorable. And you say to yourself, you know what? I bet you, I bet you if I went in there and snuggled him that he would respond. Yeah, he'd respond all right. <laughs> well, you got people go to the zoo a couple of years back or last year, remember those guys that were throwing rocks and the lion came over the top of the thing and went and got them? Every year Yellowstone National Park, or one of our great national parks, they've they got signs up that says, don't feed the bears. You know what idiots do? Because there's no intelligent life on planet Earth. You know what they do? Oh, that doesn't mean me. I got Twinkies. She's going to really like me. <laughs> I'll like you if you have Twinkies, but I don't think the bear will. Every year, somebody's mauled by a 9,000-pound bear. You ever go to Cabela's? You ever see that big grizzly bear they got back there? It's five hundred feet tall. They're huge, and when they stand up, and they got you can't outrun them. Hey, dingbat, you only got two legs; he got four. He'll get you, and he'll eat you. You ever go swimming in the Nile or over in the Amazon? I think not. Crocodiles. You ever go in the ocean? Not this kid, great white sharks. I don't even take a bath without shark repellent sitting right next to the shampoo. I don't trust any of them. Now, I got a pet theory. Oh, excuse the pun. I got a pet theory. You know why lions eat you? You know why bears chase you? You know why elephants charge you? You know why rhinoceroses will horn you? You know why pit bulls will bite you? i am tell you why. Because they are ticked off that they had it so good and we screwed it up. <laughs> now you can laugh at all you want. I believe that. I believe that. Because the Bible says, my Bible says, because the creature itself also shall be delivered. And they're earnestly looking for, I don't know what that means. I don't really know how much a dog knows. I don't know how much an animal knows. But we'll get to that in a moment. Now take your Bibles and turn back to Isaiah chapter 11. You've got to see this. All you animal lovers, here you go. Here you go, Renee. <laughs> Renee asked me this morning if pets had souls. And of course the answer to that is no. But I'll tell you what. <clears throat> they don't call a dog man's best friend for nothing. Now look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Now the stem of Jesse is Jesse, the father of David. This rod that he's talking about is Christ at the second coming of Christ, the branch, called the branch of renown back in the book of Isaiah. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and shall make him of a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. I don't even have time to get in to put all that into a practical thing if you want to get a quick understanding, but we don't have time to get in today. And he shall make him a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor. And reprove with equity. Equity is a word that means balance for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with a rod of his mouth. There's that rod of iron. With the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Now, this is a picture of Christ coming back in the millennium. This is, this is you want to make a, a comparative passage? This verse here is kin to Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20. The Lord comes back. When he comes back, he rules with a rod of iron out of his mouth. Word of God. The principles of the book are in effect. So, Christian, I'll give you this one. This is why they ought to be in effect in your life right now. Because when he comes back, the whole world's going to be under the principles of the Word of God. So you might as well get a leg up on it and learn them now. All right, here comes the good part. And the wolf, or excuse me, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. Kid being like a little baby lamb. And the calf and the young lion and the, and the fatling together <clears throat> and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion, there he is, the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the suckling child, that's Macy. That's your little kids. That's your little babies you got right now. Suckling child shall play in the hole of the asp. That's a poisonous snake. And the weaned child, that's somebody that's a little bit bigger, shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. That's a cockatrice. It means like a king serpent, like a king snake or a king cobra. They shall not hurt nor destroy in my holy mountain. Why? Why? Why is that? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. And it shall be the Gentiles seek and rest in and shall be glorious. There it is. There's the joint heir with Jesus Christ. There's the glorification. And there's the earth. The curse lifted off. The young babies. The young children. Now can play with the wild animals. The wild animals are no more under a curse. The earth is no longer under a curse. You want to have a pet lion? Here it comes. I dare say to some of you ladies will be in the millennium over there, you know, and having a great time, and you'll be all eating around at some picnic at somebody's house, and your little baby will kind of stroll out there to the, to the edge of the property, and, and then uh, and all of a sudden, out of the weeds come the big 900-power man-eating lion, and for a second you'll go, Oh, my God, my child! And you'll say, Whoops. Wrong dispensation. (laughs) It's going to be okay. Romans chapter 8 says that not only are you and I going to be liberated from the sin, but the earth, the animals. Now, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we talk about world peace. This is what every politician, every nation... Everybody on planet Earth, every writer, Aristotle and Socrates wrote about the great utopia. FDR had the New Deal. Eisenhower had the Raw Deal. It's always something new that they're going to come up with that's going to bring lasting peace. Oh, I got news for you. There'll be no peace till the Prince of Peace comes back. There'll be no peace on Earth and goodwill toward man till the righteousness of God shows up. We started the United Nations in around 1919, right after World War I. It was called the League of Nations back then. And their goal was to not have, ever have war again. World War I was such a, such a horrific war. World War I found itself right in the middle of the Industrial Age. And the middle of the Industrial Age proved one thing, that man can find better ways to kill his father, fellow man than he did before. Where in Revolutionary War, we had single-shot rifles. Where in the Civil War, we had single-shot rifles. Now, in World War I, because of the Industrial Age and all the strides that man had made, now we got guns that will shoot a thousand rounds a minute. Now we got artillery shells that will go 40 miles. Now we got airplanes that will drop bombs on top of your head. Man's technology has advanced. And it was so horrific and such a destruction of life that at the end of that war, the peacemakers got together and said, we got to stop this. Let's get all the nations together and form a league that we can stop war. In fact, their their, whole concept was to end war. There have been 368 wars since they started. They haven't stopped nothing. In fact, today, they act as one of the great tools of the devil in wiping out the nation of Israel because they're all anti-Semitic and against the nation of Israel. Israel became a nation in 1948, immediately fought a war. She fought another one in 1956. She had to another one in 1967. She fought another one in 1973. Major wars. And a, and a thousand conflicts between them. She's embroiled in one right now over there that will probably make the next one. And in every case, the United Nations stepped in right when she was ready to kick the rear ends of the people that were trying to wipe her out and stopped it and put everybody back to square one and allowed it to happen all over again. There'll be no peace. They'll be no peace. You know what the great joke is? On the side of the building in New York City, there's a passage of scripture that's found in the King James Bible, 1611, right on the side of the United Nations building. It's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 2, and it says this. Sounds good. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Wow, that sounds good. That sounds like it's going to do something. Now the only problem with that is when you, I mean you can make the Bible say anything you want to take it out of context. You see, you take that verse out of context and you can make it say whatever you want. I've learned that dealing with people and dealing with religions, the reason people get so messed up and bad teaching is because they take stuff out of context. I was talking to a guy last week or a week before last, whenever, and we were going through some things, and I showed him how they were taking a... Co- I said, if you just read the verse before and it reads after, it puts everything into context. Hey, folks, you can make the Bible say anything. If I wanted to smoke dope and get, and get into drugs, you know what I would prove? I'd take that verse in Matthew that said, and Jesus was high on a mountain. <laughs> I can make it say whatever I want. That doesn't make it what it says. See? If I wanted to ride motorcycles, I'd get that verse in Psalms that said, And David's triumph was heard throughout the land. <laughs> Got to stay in the context. Now let me read you the context. Oh, you need to get this one down, because this one's about the millennium too. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word of that Isaiah the son of Amos, spoke concerning Judah and Jerusalem. There's your first problem. Can you imagine the United Nations putting the word Jude up on the wall connected with J- Jerusalem? Woo! That ain't going to happen. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. I ah, can't put that up there. It could be the house of Muhammad or the house of Israel, but not the house of Jacob. See the problem we get in? And He will teach us His ways and we will walk in His path. For out of, whoa, here comes a dirty five-letter, four-letter word. Zion. Zion. You know what? Zion is the most despicable word in the Arab language. Zion is connected with Israel. It's connected with the Zionist movement. They got back in the land. Zion speaks that, that Zion, Mount Zion belongs to the Jews. Oh, they hate the Zionists. We will walk in his path, and out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, not Mecca. And he shall judge among the nations, and he shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their sword. Now, here's where we get it. We shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up... Uh, sword against nation, neither shall they learn lore anymore. Oh, house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the land of the Lord. Now you see why they couldn't put the whole passage in there? You see why when they wanted to pretend they were doing some great humanitarian process and they wanted God and everybody to fall into it? You can't ever be deceived, folks. you got to read the whole text. got to read the whole passage. They lifted out what they wanted to do to bring peace on their earth because they thought they could bring the peace in. You know what that verse says in its context? You ain't bringing nothing in. The Lord's going to bring it in when He comes back. All right, now back to Romans chapter eight, verse 22. Look at verse 22, "For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together. That's the animals, that's the creation, and that's us until now. Now this groaneth and travaileth. Another great truth. You know the why we reason we have floods? You know the reasons why we have hurricanes? You know the reason why we have tornadoes, tsunamis, avalanches, volcanoes, uh, economy, disaster, war, sickness, disease? You know why we have starvation? You know why we have little kids dying, middle kids dying, big kids dying? You know why we have car wrecks, train wrecks, airplane crashes? I'll tell you why. Because this whole world is about had all it can take. We brought sin into this world. We had the right choice to make. We made the wrong choice. This world is under the bondage of it. Now, your insurance adjuster, when you have a tornado or you have a flood, you know what your insurance adjuster will tell you so he don't have to pay it? He'll say, well, we don't cover that. Those are acts of, oh, you're on top of it. Act- All together. Here we go. One, two, three. They're not acts of God. They're acts of man. God never intended that. You see how everything gets blamed on God? Everything. God gets blamed for everything. A little baby tragically dies, and God gets blamed for it. Something happens in our lives. God gets blamed for it. Something transpires around the world. Why did God do that? Your insurance company comes to you and says, well, we don't cover that. That's an act of God. An act of God. God's plan, God's purpose was a beautiful place where there was no sin, where there was nothing that was going to intervene. That was us that brought that in. Adam sinned. Death passed upon Adam to all men, for all have sinned. I agree with the guy. I, there's two bumpers. I don't like bumper stickers. I really don't. But I saw two this last week that I really liked. I saw a couple I didn't like. One of them said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, if you pray for that, it means you're going to have another big war. You know, The one just said, pray for peace. But the two I really liked, one of them was really neat. It said, kill them all, let God sort them out. I thought that was a good one. The other one I saw was really stellar. I'm like, i can ever never find where to buy one. I don't put them on my car, but I put one on... I'll put one on your car. I'll let you just drive around with it. <laughs> you know what it said? It said, there's nothing wrong with planet Earth. Just the people who are living on it. And I thought to myself, boy, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? The day of the Lord. That day. The day. The day God liberates not only man from his sin of Adam's curse, but he also lifts off this earth the bondage. And lifted off the animals who were not made subject to sin willingly, but by cause of man's sin. And then taking you and I, those who have, go back to the third reason. Who have found out and kept your focus. Realize that God has something for you to do. Realize that you don't have a, a lifetime. Bible says in the book of James, what is thy life but a vapor that appears for a little while, then fadeth away. You know, the only, and you know me. <clears throat> I'm Bible Bob. I believe the Bible better than most people. I, I just love, I believe the Bible. But I, I got a big, and I've told you some of this, told you this before, some of you, but no, you were there. I only found one mistake ever in the Bible. Well, I got really quiet, like, oh, you want to hear this one, don't you? <laughs> Bob, who said there's no mistakes in the Bible, has found a mistake? Yeah, I have, I have, I have, I have. Now, and I corrected it. And when I'm done this morning, you ought to correct it yours. And you need to get your piece of, of, of pen and, and cross it out and then put the real thing in it. I mean, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. just telling you. And um, the only mistake I ever found in the Bible is at the end of Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. Now, Revelation 22 21 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, look below that. Right below that verse, at the end of that New Testament. What do you have there? The what? Real loud together. One, two, three. Amen. Well, that's a mistake. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Now, God didn't write the end. In fact, your New Testament ends right there where it says, Amen. Amen means so be it. You know, when somebody preaches and somebody says, Amen! They may, well, they, they're agreeing with what the guy said. They're basically saying, Amen, so be it. See? So at the end of the Bible, you have, when God closes out the book, it says amen. But obviously, you know what? Uh, The book was put in a format, and we follow the rules of uh, of putting a book together. So uh, if I would have, if I would have been the publisher, when I would have got down there and got to that thing, I would have put out the end, I would have put no, just the beginning. And I really think that sometimes God's people really look at the Bible after they read the last verse in that thing in Revelation chapter 22, and I really do think they believe, at least they live their lives like it, like that's the end. It's not the end, it's the beginning. I used to bug me a long time why that when God wrote the Bible, who covers every detail in the Bible, why in the world when He got the Revelation chapter 22 when all the sin's gone, all the bad stuff's gone, all the problems are gone, and I finally got rid of my old sin nature, and now i got a glorified body, when life just starts getting good and the plan of God starts getting going and everything really gets going, why did He end the book? I'd have much rather left out the bad stuff and put another chapter in all the good stuff. But the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, he didn't end the book, because that Bible is a complete circle, and it ends in Revelation and goes right back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, with Adam and Eve in a perfect estate in the garden, is the picture of where it's going to be when God comes back and sets the thing up. We studied in Song of Solomon, talked about that garden, New Year's Eve. You know, I've come to the conclusion, I've been dealing with people for many, many years, One of the most incredible things I've ever realized about man and the Bible and talking about what we're talking about today is the fact that everything that God created in Genesis and there's a whole order of creation and you'll find that when God created things, he put, he put in laws of order, the way things are supposed to run. He put in laws of nature and he put in laws of conduct. And I found that everything in Genesis that God created obeys Him. You notice that animals never violate those laws. They may may bite you, but they're only doing it because they're mad because you screwed it up. You never notice in the Bible that animals never violate those laws? Numbers chapter 22, Balaam was riding on an ass. And he was riding on that ass. Balaam had his heart hardened against God. And God had a message for Balaam. Balaam wasn't listening to anybody. So you know what God did? God supernaturally spoke to him through that ass. And he's riding along and the angel of the Lord is standing there and he's going to kill Balaam. And and here's the thing. Now this always bothered me. Balaam couldn't see the angel, but the animal did. The animal did. The animal saw the angel of the Lord and refused to go. And Balaam starts whipping him on the rear end with his, whatever he had to get him to go. And if the animal went, he was going to be killed. Balaam was going to be killed. So you know what God did? God had Balaam ass, the ass. And you got to read the story. Because sometimes it's kind of hard to fit which one really the ass, but you just follow the thing through and it'll come out of the end. And he's whipping that ass saying, come on, get going. And the ass looks up and says, what in the world are you hitting me for? Don't you know that the Lord's standing right there? And if I go through there, pal, you're, you're, you're mincemeat. That animal obeyed. He saw the Lord. He stopped. When the Lord told him to speak, he spoke exactly what God wanted him to say. Incredible. Incredible. I look at Jonah, the book of Jonah and the whale. The Bible says God prepared a great whale. Well, it says great fish in Jonah, but it's a Matthew 12, it's, it's a whale. And that whale did exactly what God told him to do. You want to know a real tough one that has really boggled my mind all of my life, and I'll never figure this out probably until I get home to heaven. How about Genesis chapter 6? You know, the Bible says that God took all the animals by two. Well, in reality, He took the clean animals by seven, but He took the unclean animals by two. Now, you realize that, that Noah preached and, and it took 120 years to build that ark. Some of those animals had, and you got to remember now, got to remember, back then there are no oceans like today. There are seas, but there's no oceans. And the earth is a much more vast place than it is even today all those civilizations they found deep under the water, that's back in Genesis chapter 6. You know how far some of those animals had to walk to get to that ark? You think that Noah just went down and opened up the gates to the zoo? (laughs) Why did some animals go and some animals not go? Why did some animals who started out, why did they all get there? If If I guarantee you, if I told everybody here To meet me in St. Louis next Monday at 9 o'clock in the morning, it's very imperative you need to be there, and you didn't have to work. I promise you, you know what happened? Half of you wouldn't come. The other half would be late. And if it was a life-ending thing and the earth was going to be wiped out and I had a spaceship to get you off this planet, probably me and about four or five of you would be on it. Why did not they respond that way? Why did the animals do exactly what God said? It's the most amazing thing in the world when God said to those, and how did he say it? got two monkeys up in a tree. Did God come down and say, hey, two guys, hey, how you doing? I want you to head over here to, it's about 6,000 miles, but you know, here to catch a, catch a plane, catch a freight train. How'd they get there? I mean, you got birds flying all over there. How did he pick two? I mean, when he, did he go out in a herd of lions and tigers and he'd say, hey guys, uh, uh, you two, uh, I'm going to tell you now, And did, how'd he tell them? Why did some go and the others stay? Everything God creates and the animals obey Him. Know another one? Daniel in the lion's den. Oh, that's a good one. I got a, a little saying. I, I talk about Daniel and the lion. I'll tell you at the end of the story. But anyway, Dan, that's a good one. Daniel in the lion's den. You ever figure that one out? Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but they dug a big hole back there in Babylon. And that hole was to get rid of the people they didn't like. And what they did is they had lions down there and never fed them. And so, when you threw somebody down the hole, they just tore them apart, and it was a violent death, terrible death. I mean, they would make good copy on, on, on YouTube, but it was a terrible thing, you know, at the time. And they would bring people over, and there'd be about a 20-foot fall, and about nine or ten lions down there, and that was their way. And they'd throw you down that pit, and lions would tear you apart. They'd fight over you. Rabbi, you want to get one leg, one get the other leg, one get one arm, one get you in the middle, one get on this side, just poof. So, they took Daniel and threw him down that lion's pan. You know, they threw Daniel down there because he was going to take a stand for God. Now, these are wild lions. This isn't the millennium. Now, I don't know how this thing happened, but I know what happened. I know I I know, I know, I know about 20 minutes before they threw Daniel in there because the Bible says they had a top on it. For 20 minutes, those lions are down there. They're hungry. They're mean. They're nasty. They're down there saying among themselves. Oh boy, they messed us up in Genesis chapter 3. Next one they throw down here, I'm going to bite him really slow. We're going to eat him up. We're going to eat him up. But that time... The Lord shows up down there and says, hi, fellas, how you doing? They all recognize him. When I said to the other one, there's a lion of the tribe of Judah. (laughs) Yes, sir, what do you need? He said, well, boys, here's the bottom line. I got my guy, Daniel, and he's taking a stand for me, and they're not liking it. And they're going to throw him down here in the lion's den. And you know you guys eat very well when they throw somebody down here. Because I know you're mad about Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, 4. And I know how that thing goes. But the bottom line is this. This is my man. And I just want to tell you guys, I don't want you to hurt him. In fact, I want him to have the nicest sleep that he's ever had. I want you to, when he gets down here, you know, he's going to be late. And he's going to be, no, he's scared. Just curl up in a big ball. Let him, let him get down there in the middle all that soft fur. And then all of you just start, start purring and put him to sleep. I want him to have the best night of sleep he ever had. They said, yes, sir. They threw Daniel down there. You ever notice who had the bad night in that? Wasn't Daniel? Bible says the king couldn't sleep all night. He's walking back and forth. Oh, what are I do? What's going on here? You know what Daniel's doing? He's down there. I'll be going there, going. Daniel snuggling up there. And about that time, big old paw comes up and King's up there going, Oh boy, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And, uh, and you know what he did? The next morning he comes down, and he pulls that thing off and he says, Daniel, Daniel, is your God Abel? Abel Daniel said, Would you close that thing up there? You're letting a draft in down here. We're having a good time. It's almost like the millennium. He got Daniel out. And then you know what he did? All the people that he accused Daniel, he threw them in a the lion's pit. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says they were dead and they were ripped apart when they hit the ground moral of the story is this. And if you don't get nothing else out of my sermon this morning, get this. If you forget everything else, go home with this. It'll be worth your trip. Don't ever be afraid when you're thrown into the lion's den. As long as, the lion of the tribe of Judah is there with you. And As Gomer Pye would say, Shazam! <laughs> You ever notice how the natural elements all obey? In Genesis 6, it never rained before. And then God said, let it rain. And it rained. Forty days later, stop raining. And it stopped. Ever notice in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, when they're on that little ship and it's Tossing forth in a great storm, and it's black, and it's thundering, and everything is coming down around it, and a Jesus woke up, and they're scared to death, and He just said, wind and sea, be still. And the Bible says that the disciples marveled, and they said to themselves, what manner of man is this? Even the wind obeys Him. Book of Joshua, God said to the sun and the moon, just stand still in your orbit around the sun. We need to finish the battle. And they obeyed him. Everything God made obeys him. All of his creation follows his rules and obeys him without question, except one element, and that element is man. It's man. Man in his stubbornness. Man in his pride. Man in his arrogance. It basically comes down to most of the things in our lives, folks. Saved or lost, it doesn't matter. It basically comes down to the issues that you and I have, and I can put it in a real simple concept. It basically comes down to the will of man versus the will of God. I think back in Genesis chapter 32 is one of the greatest stories anywhere in the Bible where it talks about Jacob wrestled with God. You know what that wrestling match was over? What Jacob wanted to do and what God wanted him to do. Credible. It doesn't matter if you're saved or you're lost. An unsaved man will curse God and hate the Bible to excuse himself over the will of God so he doesn't have to do what God wants him to do. A saved man or woman will use the Bible to excuse themselves and justify themselves not to do God's will in their life. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. All that matters in your life and my life, if you're a Christian, is you get to the point in your life where you come to the end of self. That it's not your will anymore; it's His will. God's people actually live their lives like they think that uh, that you're gonna, you're gonna. I mean, hey, I should go back to my original premise. God has a plan for your life. You've only got so much time to do it, but it has to be done His way, not yours. Philippians chapter two, verse ten. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of everything in heaven, there it is, and in the earth, there it is, and under the earth, and things under the earth. You know what? That's a great verse. That verse doesn't say you will or you won't. And some of us, unsaved people I meet there, I meet and talk to them, they, they act like that, that their defiance is going to go on Forever. I meet some of God's people, and they act act like their defiance toward God in their life is going to go on, that that's their choice. They're going to go on forever. Let me tell you something. That Bible says every knee. It's not a matter of whether you're saved or lost here this morning. It is not a matter of whether you will or whether you won't. It's only a matter of when you will. As an unsaved person, the will of God for you is very simple. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God's will for an unsaved man and woman as they get saved. You'll either accept Him now and bow your knee to Him as your Savior now and take Him as your Savior, or in that day at the great white throne judgment, you'll bow your knee to Him as an unsaved sinner and be cast in the lake fire. But you will bow it. As, an un, as a saved person, you either figure out what God wants you to do, you either get your, your head screwed on straight and see that you've only got so much time in your life to put the thing together, and you got to do it His way, not your way, and you got to conform yourself, submit yourself, change about you, whatever you got to change, and you got to get to the end of self right now, and you bow that knee right now, and you say, God, I'm yours, do whatever you want to do, I only got 20-some years left, give it everything you got, but let me do it your way, and here I am, and I'm at the end of figuring it out myself, I'm going to turn it over to you, you either bow your knee there, or you'll bow your knee to the judgment to Christ, and you'll lose everything that you had for you. It's not a matter. Get it straight. It's not a matter. It's not a matter. Get it straight. It's not a matter of whether you will or whether you won't. It's just a matter of when you will. You'll either do it now, or you'll do it then. As an unsaved man, you'll trust him now, or you'll bow your knee there and and into your damnation for all of eternity. As a saved person, you'll bow your knee now, give it all to him, do what you got to do, or in that day, you'll bow it to him there and lose every reward you have in the millennium. I haven't even gotten to the downside of millennium yet. That's what happens to the people who, who don't follow through with the thing. I couldn't, how am I going to put that into this mess with everything we've had? But the bottom line is this, ladies and gentlemen. This fits right into Romans chapter 8 where we're at the redemption of your body. God has a plan for you. If you're here this morning and you're saved, God has something He wants you to do. You're not going to do it your way, you're not going to do it my way. You're not going to do it your wife's way. You're, not going to, you're going to have to do it God's way. You have to recognize and understand that God saves you, puts you into this scenario, and brought you where He's brought you for one purpose. The only thing you've got to decide is, yes, I'm going to, or no, I'm not. Life's simple. It's not complex. You can have all of God you can stand and all of God that you want, but you're not going to get it your way. You're going to get it His way. And if you're here this morning and you're unsaved, you never trusted Christ, your own personal Savior. I love you to death, and I'd do anything in the world to help you. I really would, but the bottom line is simply this. It's not a matter, sir, ma'am, it's not a matter that you're not going to accept Him. It's just a matter of when you are. You'll accept Him now under a God of grace and a God of love and a God of tenderness and a God that wants to take you and use you and spend an eternity with you, or you'll bow that knee and accept Him as a God of wrath and your judge in the final great judgment, and cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. In both cases, saved and lost, the choice is yours. The Bible says God has something He wants you to do. It's up to you to get in the right place, get the right stuff, get the right person, get everything in your life where you need to have it to learn what that is, and change about you, submit yourself, do whatever you got to do to get to the point in your life where you become the man or the woman that God wants you to be. Because there's a day coming, God's day, when this earth is going to be liberated. You're going to have all the animals in the world. They're going to be as happy as can be. And everybody is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, the redemption of our body. Father, we thank and praise You for the Lord Jesus, and we love You.